When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1623, seven years after the death of William Shakespeare, a collection of his plays was published for the first time in folio. Printed by Edward Blunt and William Jaggard and put together by the actors John Hemming and Henry Condell, this collection, titled Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, and now more commonly referred to as the first folio, brought together a total of 36 plays, only 17 of which had been printed before. It's hard to think about Shakespeare without plays like Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Antony and Cleopatra, Macbeth and Coriolanus. But without the folio, none of these would have survived. The folio tells us that Shakespeare's wit can no more lie hid than it could be lost, and that we should read him therefore and again and again. But how was it produced? Who made it and how and to what extent does Shakespeare's enduring legacy owe to its existence? Joining me today is Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College, Oxford, whose work on early modern theatre in print and performance includes an ongoing role as editor of the journal Shakespeare Survey for Cambridge University Press, as well as the books This is Shakespeare, The Making of Shakespeare's First Folio, and her book that has most recently been reprinted in a glorious edition for this anniversary year, Shakespeare's First Folio. Four centuries of an iconic book. Professor Smith, I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors, and how fabulous to be speaking about Shakespeare's first folio in this particular year. Absolutely, 400th birthday of this great book. So I suppose we should start by talking about what a folio is. <laughs> How were books published at this time and what does a folio mean compared to sort of other publication types? The first thing to say is nobody would have called this the first folio at the time. The first bit only becomes first once you've got second, third and fourth. It's a retrospective designation. And folio, I think, also comes much later. It comes from booksellers and the ways that books get organised in that marketplace by size. Because folio refers to a size. It produces a book that's about sort of full scalp, a little bit bigger than A4. We always say it's a sheet of printing paper folded once. But because there isn't an absolutely standard size for the paper in the first place, that doesn't completely help. But it's a large format compared with the next size down quartos, which 
literature, much more pamphlety. The quarto would be the sort of paperback to the folios exhibition catalogue. It's that kind of relationship in terms of size, also prestige and cost. And then there's a very small one, Octavos. There are smaller and smaller ones, yeah. Octavo and then Duodecimo is one of the ones that I like. So these are little pocket books and often devotional books and little advice books are in these really tiny formats designed to be carried around. And one thing we can say about the folio format and Shakespeare's first folio is this is not a book designed to be carried around. This is a book which establishes itself in the library, in the study. And that physicality tells us something about how the plays are being rebranded, reframed for a new generation. Yes, that's really interesting, isn't it? This is the coffee table book equivalent. We're supposed to see this as something authoritative and worth looking at and establishing a sort of mark. I think that's right. It most certainly is a book that you would need to consult on a table with good light. It's quite small print. It is prepared for the kind of careful attention that you might give to perhaps a book of natural philosophy, perhaps a book of theology or law or something like that. In a way, the play, the playful bit of plays, has been a little bit lost. And I think it's one of the paradoxes of thinking about this great book in the 21st century, that while it most certainly preserves Shakespeare for later generations, it also consolidated the move of Shakespeare out of the theatre into the study, into the classroom, into the exam syllabus, in all the encounters that many people have had with Shakespeare, which have really put them off. Let's come back to that, because I think that's such an interesting idea. Tell me what we know about printing houses at this time and the printers responsible for the folio specifically. How was the folio financed? It's a great question about finance, because I think sometimes we're so interested in the literary or the aesthetic value or the assumed literary or aesthetic value that we don't actually think about who pays for the paper, who pays the compositors for their work setting type. This book is really a collaboration between men of the theatre, Shakespeare's fellow actors, John Hemming and Henry Condell, and men from the publishing industry. And those are the Jaggards, William and Isaac, and a stationer called Edward Blunt. So the Jaggards own a printing shop, so they own type, a press. Their main work has been, I think of them as being a bit like a sort of modern copying shop. You take your copy, they have the tech, they reproduce it. They don't particularly solicit your copy, you go and do that. So that's how the actual physical labour of printing works. Somebody commissions a job of printing. Whereas Edward Blunt is more in the position that we would now attribute to a publisher. That's to say someone who either commissions or secures a work that they think is worth printing, is worth publishing. And probably Blunt is the main investor in the folio. But one of the things I love about the sort of micro history of this great book is that William Jagger, the father in this business, is getting increasingly frail. He's gone blind and his son, youngish son Isaac, is really taking over. And it feels to me as if, this is speculation, but I think Isaac has big plans for this business. I think he wants to do something bigger than they have done. And that's why he commits them to what is actually a really big logistical job, 900 close set pages, copy coming in all different types, from manuscript to print, and this long project of getting this book together. 
And he was right. I mean, we know his name. <laughs> we do know his so. name. Yeah, that's absolutely right. He establishes himself forever through this book. So yeah, it was a good call. And you mentioned the actors, Henry Condor and John Hemmings. What was their relationship to Shakespeare? Why would they have wanted to collect his plays together in this way? Hemming and Condell, together with Shakespeare and Richard Burbage and Will Camp, had joined together to form this incredibly influential and successful acting company called the Chamberlain's Men in 1594. They'd worked together for years. And in Shakespeare's will, which is made in March 1616, Shakespeare leaves money for them to buy mourning rings, remembrance rings, to Hemming, Condell and Burbage. Burbage himself dies in 1619. And some people have felt implicitly or maybe even explicitly the real memorial that they were commissioned to produce was this literary collection. And that possibly we've wondered for centuries really whether Shakespeare had retired to Stratford in some way to work on his own collected works. And I guess we will never know the answer to that. But if it is a commission from 1616 or even earlier, it takes them a long time to pull it off. And that may be another sign of what a job this is to get all the aspects of this publication in a line. Given that it's this folio, it's 900 pages long, it's close set, it's a huge job, what would it have cost to purchase? And does this tell us anything about who would have owned it? Yeah, so as we know, much of the book publishing industry is a pretty elite industry. This is a book which cost a pound originally. These sums are always so difficult, aren't they, to work out. By what measure of historical economics would you translate that? How many sheep or loaves of bread is it? What proportion of a artisan salary or something is it? I suppose what we can say is this is an expensive but not super expensive book. But it is bought by elites. The first person we know to buy it is a lovely person. I don't know if he is a lovely person, but to me in history, he has become lovely. Edward Deering, who's a nobleman, young gentry man from Kent. He's really trying hard in 1623 to network in London. He wants to get in with Buckingham and he uses theatre and fashion really interestingly, to try and make a splash. And he's also somebody who has, in some ways, the misfortune of being known to history in this part of his life only through his account book. So he looks a bit, sort of flippity bit, actually, because all he does is buy things. But it would be like a biography of us based on our contactless purchases or something. And you just think, oh, my God, this woman does nothing but buy cups of coffee and this kind of thing. Anyway, he buys two copies of the first folio in December 1623 at a pound each. And we can compare what that costs, what other items of expenditure that he's undertaking at that point. And one thing that we can see is that the money he spends on his wardrobe outstrips this by a factor of 10 or 20. So this is pretty manageable recreational expense for Deering. But this is not a book for the populace in that way. And that's another of its slight difficulties as an object of celebration in the 21st century. Ah, that's interesting. Can we talk a bit about the sort of technical side of things? The way the books were set and printed and everything that that means. In practical terms, 
how would the folio have been put together? You've said that this is close set. So thinking about this job, were there multiple typesetters working on the set, compositing the printing blocks? How did it work? Yeah, so it works over a long period. So they're doing it a bit at a time. And of course, what you have to do is set, if we go back to that description of the folio page as a single sheet of paper folded in half, you can see that makes four printed pages, two on each side. So one side of those two pages need to be set together in order that they can be on that page. But those two pages are not, this is where it gets fantastically complicated, doesn't it, especially to hear, those two pages are not contiguous. That's to say the text doesn't run across them. Imagine if you were making a pamphlet, which is going to have a staple in the middle. You can see that your pages, only the centre page is all serial and then the other the ones behind it have to be separated in order to put the later pages in. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I was just thinking, I'm sure somebody's mind loves this. But from my point of view, this is I'm like I filled with horror. At the yes, exactly. It, I'm, I start to panic immediately as people start to say this. The technical term for this is it's set in sixes. So that means there are three sheets of paper, each with two printed pages, which makes six. And what that means, actually, for compositors, the way I think about it is they're like people who dig a tunnel by starting at the opposite ends. And the job is they've got to meet in the middle. And so they start by printing at different parts in the book. And the job is that they've got to get the separate sections all to fit together. And that sometimes is a problem in the first folio. There are a couple of spare pages where you think something has gone wrong here. This is a mistake in the calculation. There are some bits where you can see that the Compositors know they've got quite a lot of space to fill, so they're leaving a lot of lines in between stage directions, and there are some where they're in a panic that they're going to run out of space. So you can see the sort of ebb and flow, the kind of rhythm of typesetting. I think the act of compositing, it's picking out every single individual piece of type and setting them in mirror image in order to be printed. It's an extraordinarily skillful job. It has a huge amount, I think, of manual dexterity, muscle memory of knowing. These are incredibly skilled jobs, and we know that because we can see that probably because they're so busy, the Jaggards take on a new apprentice in 1622, a young man called John Leeson. And because the first folio is probably one of Leeson's first books, he is being supervised quite closely. There's quite a lot of correction of his work. And also we can see the level of errors that an inexperienced print house person makes. You know, Leeson's been quite cruelly treated, I think, by folio history as if he's a sort of bull in a china shop in the bull in a printing shop. But really, he hasn't done his 10,000 hours of practice that makes a person skillful. He's learning on the job and what a great job to learn on. Yes, it absolutely makes sense that even between experienced typesetters, you might have had some variations in accuracy. Someone who's having a bad day, you know, my mind immediately went to dark things like infant mortality, but all sorts of circumstances and illness and things that might mean that somebody is not in their best mind that day and going to make mistakes. Yeah, and also the copy that you're reading from. We have none of Shakespeare's manuscripts 
But we do have some Playhouse documents by other writers and they look as if they have had additions put in, annotations and so on. That's quite a hard job to read and to decipher and to make sure that you're following. This is meant to be crossed out, but this is meant to substitute for this. There's a job of deciphering as well as the job of getting the right type and all of that. And the type is only in the right place if someone has dismantled one of the printing frames, washed all the type and dried it and put it all back in the right place. So there's lots of ways where this technical job can go a bit awry. So thinking about errors in the text, and there are a lot, one word that comes up in Measure for Measure is prenzy, which is surely an error for precise or princely. Should we imagine that the compositor's job was also somewhat an editorial job? I think compositors are interpreting as they go along. Prenzy is a really good example and a really interesting example because actually it goes against one of the things we think we know about copyists, both actually scribal and print compositors, which is a tendency to draw the unfamiliar back to the familiar. So if you see a word and it's not that familiar to you, you're quite likely to reconcile it into something that is familiar. And therefore, one theory in editing has been if there is an unusual word or an unusual spelling or something, then that's more likely to be a feature of the manuscript than something that the compositor has chosen to do because they're unlikely to choose to do something that they don't themselves understand. But they're definitely making decisions at the level of words in the Prenzi example, but also, and I think really dominantly, at the level of punctuation. So there has been an interest by actors in the punctuation of the first folio and quite a strong movement in the contemporary theatre that finds the punctuation and capitalisation actually a kind of meaningful instruction about where to place emphasis and has drawn on the idea that Shakespeare himself was an actor and that he was giving this as direct instructions. I think if that works, then that's great, but I think it can't be true. I think that things like punctuation are almost certainly the way that the compositors are handling their text. They're not copying that out, they're inserting it where they think it's appropriate. And sometimes they're probably inserting it as much as part of justifying the lines, that's to say, making the type sit tight so that it doesn't fall out as they are in thinking about should this be a semicolon or a comma. And of course, that could really change the way we understand a line. Yeah. And it's something that most modern editors do acknowledge because punctuation is one of the areas where even modern editors are probably most interventionist in the text, that they are repunctuating without particular regard for how the text is originally punctuated because they don't think that punctuation derives from the author. And back to the Prenzi idea, it seems to me that it is also possible, another reading of it could be that a compositor could think that they were not terribly well educated and they didn't know French and they didn't know Latin and maybe this was a word in a language they didn't know so they were just going to leave it. Yeah that's a really good idea and we certainly know that the level of Latin competence in Jagged's print shop is pretty low. The Latin is all quite bungled and it's clear that isn't being looked over by somebody who feels just familiar with even very basic dramatic Latin, like Actus Primus or something, they're having no kind of trouble with that. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. There's another really lovely example in The Tempest, the word scammels, 
Caliban says, I've shown you scammels on the rocks, and we've really struggled with that. That's a slightly different example in that, for me, the idea that we don't know what that is speaks really poignantly to the unfamiliarity and the not-in-their-right-placeness of Prospero and the other colonists, that there is a world of that island that they and we can never understand. So I like it when scammels is left in the text, but quite often editors do think that their job is to make words understandable and so they change it to something more recognisable. What can we learn from comparing, where it's possible to do that, other printed versions of the plays to the folio edition? Hamlet exists in three versions, doesn't it? So how can we judge accuracy if such a thing is possible? This too is an area where I think ideas have changed. So I think we used to consider Shakespeare's texts that there was an original, there was a perfect version as Shakespeare had intended it. And then there were versions that had been transmitted by other agents and marmalized, which I don't think is a technical term, in the process. So that could be actors, it could be people in the theatre copying down what they heard, it could be printers who didn't understand what they were setting. So that was a model that said there is the sort of genius and unfortunately there are the intermediaries and the intermediaries muddy it up and what we're trying to do is to get back to the genius. I think what we've come to be more interested in now is the idea that even if we just shift our terminology very slightly, if we call these plays scripts, which isn't a theatrical word that exists in this period, but I think the concept probably does. If we call them scripts, we immediately think of them as being much more mobile, much more contingent, much more in motion, much more susceptible to change and intended to be changed. And I think what we tend to feel now, as in the Hamlet example, is that we have got three versions of Hamlet which tell a different story about their own origins. They're not all slightly debased versions of one perfect one that we don't now have, but they represent stages in the lifetime of a play, which is a kind of a living document, a document that will change, circumstances change. Clearly there are jokes that are funny one week and then a year later are not funny at all. And those kinds of moments, I think, keep being changed. So one of the things I think we can learn from looking at the different versions of the plays is that Shakespeare's plays operate in a theatre ecology in which the script is malleable for the greater good in a way of performance, performance in different contexts. So it's back to that idea of the contrast between a play as something that is playful and as something that is codified and finalised, written down. And I think we've tended to imagine that the first folio was a finalised version. And that's completely cued by Hemming and Condell, who write at the beginning of the book that you have been abused with diverse stolen and surreptitious copies. So you may have bought some of these plays before, but you were a sucker. You bought the wrong version. And here they are, perfect and cured in all their limbs. Wonderful sort of ableist language of this book. So they cue the idea that the first folio is the final word on all these texts. But I think we can see now that they have another agenda, not least the agenda of selling a book, half of the contents of which have already been available for keen purchasers that might look a less desirable product if you're a keen theatre buyer. And I think we now feel, yeah, absolutely, Shakespeare, like any other great writer, is 
revising, is rethinking, the theatre is intervening. These are texts in motion and the folio captures them at a particular point, but that needn't be seen as their ultimate or their final stage is a particular moment. Yes, we have been misled by their sales blurb. Absolutely. Once you look at that line back in the context, you see this is all a sales pitch. And I think everything they say, we received never a blot in his papers, they say. They're constructing an idea of the genius author who's just comes fully formed from his brow. But they're saying, whatever you do, buy. It's a great line, whatever you do, buy. Yes, and how interesting also that that idea of the author who doesn't work hard in order to be a genius is already available at that time. Sing, muses. Sing to me a history of Olympus and the deathless gods who govern earth, sea and sky. That is Zeus's command. It's the Ancients from History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and every month on the podcast we're taking a deep dive into the Olympian gods. None of them are as simple or as single-faceted as we've kind of reduced them to in our heads when we think about the gods of the Pantheon who do one thing each. With world-leading experts, we'll be telling the dramatic story of who they are. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex and passion and specifically she was considered often to be love itself. The myths and their meanings. Hephaestus was already there and that he split Zeus's head with an axe in order to liberate Athena from Zeus's head. And how they've influenced the course of history. Imagine ourselves back in the footsteps of people who are trying to explain and understand a world around them. A world which is not fair or just. That gets us into absolute key facet of how to understand the ancient Greek gods, which is that they are not good people. Join us as we explore some of the most fascinating deities history has ever known. Listen and follow on the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Can we talk about the completeness of William Shakespeare's complete plays? <laughs> Was it complete? Were some plays left out? Certainly some plays were left out. So Pericles which has already been published in 1609 with Shakespeare's name on it. Most scholars now would think it's a collaboration, but certainly with a distinct Shakespeare component. That's not in the folio. And nor is another collaborative work, The Two Noble Kinsmen, written with Fletcher, and that's published later in 1634. But we've also got the ghost of these plays, Shakespearean plays, which we seem to have completely lost, a play called Love's Labours One, which is a great sort of fantasy work for Shakespeareans. There's a wonderful Doctor Who episode about it, actually called The Shakespeare Code. And the play based on stories in Don Quixote called Cardinio. And we don't really quite know why those four plays, the two that were published elsewhere and the two that seem to be lost, are not included. There does look to be a sense that collaborative plays, plays that are known to be collaborative, are being pushed a little bit onto the margins of the collection. And we know that because one of the questions about getting the rights to previously published plays which is what Edward Blunt and Isaac Jagged need to do. They need to go round their fellow stationers and buy up the rights to Henry IV Part One or Hamlet or the plays that have been previously printed. And they hit a wall with the owner of Troilus and Cressida. And it seems as if there's no dice with him. And they have actually printed the catalogue, the list of the plays in the first folio, leaving out Troilus and Cressida before negotiations somehow break through. And they do get the rights to the play. So there are two consequences of that. One is that Troilus and Cressida is unpaginated and is just slipped in at the end of the histories and just before the tragedies. But the second consequence is really in some ways more fascinating to me, and that's that they have got a plan B to fill in the space that had been set aside for Troilus and Cressida. And that plan B is to print Timon of Athens. So they do that. And in fact, we end up with both of them. But we can see that the printing of Timon of Athens is a sort of accident, really. It's a fill-in for something that they really wanted, even though we mostly think that Timon of Athens, again, is a collaborative play with Shakespeare and Middleton. So I wonder if they had any other plan Bs or plan Cs, plays that they would slot in if they couldn't get these other ones. And the thing about Timon of Athens is we don't have any other mention of it. So if, if it hadn't come in, we wouldn't have it but we wouldn't even know that we didn't have it gosh which itself raises all sorts of possibilities exactly exactly so we know we've got known unknowns in donald Trumpsfeld's terms we've got <laughs> we've got love's labors one and cardinio those are known unknowns but without the folio and the, without this kind of snafu in the folio production we wouldn't have time of athens but it would be a completely unknown and there may be other unknown unknowns out there and are there inclusions or exclusions that change in later editions of the folio? Yeah, by the time we get to the third folio, 1663, 1664, seven plays are added in, only one of which, Pericles, that we've already mentioned, is now thought to be by Shakespeare. But these seven plays are obviously designed to pep up the collection a bit, relaunch it, particularly 
it comes out just as the theatres have reopened. It's a sort of new investment in theatrical texts as part of wider restoration theatrical culture. So getting a few more plays is clearly desirable. And we do see a number of first folio owners trading in for the new edition with more included. It's more like a textbook or a an anthology or something, that a new improved version is one that you would prefer. So famously, the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and they're very ashamed of this, I think, they get rid of their first folio when the third comes out. So do other people as well. Can we talk a bit more about the preliminary material, by which I mean all the pages before the plays themselves? How does Shakespeare's first folio compare with contemporary folios such as Ben Jonson's 1616 or the Bowman and Fletcher folio from the 1640s? And what does this tell us? I think the preliminaries to the first folio are actually still really quite mysterious. If you look at them on the page, they're a bit scrappy, They don't seem to be quite set out as if somebody has got an overview of what's going to be in there. The people who write the dedicatory poems, Ben Johnson aside, are pretty B-list, really. We've tried quite hard to make them seem important, but they're not really. Whether that says something about Shakespeare's reputation, whether it says something about the difficulties of producing this book, I quite know. Gary Taylor, brilliant American academic, has said, surely this book of plays by the King's Men should have been dedicated to the King. And James has lots of books dedicated to him. And it's very weird. Once Taylor says that, it's one of his sort of characteristic provocations. Once he says that, you think, yeah, why on earth wasn't it? The Herbert brothers, to whom it is dedicated, you can make a case for that, really, but it's not as high stakes as you would think. So what we've got in the dedicatory material is a series of sort of elegies, for Shakespeare, really. And then some material that tells us a bit more maybe about the theatrical context. We get a list of the actors, so a list of all the people who've been in the Chamberlain's Men and then the King's Men from its early days in the 1590s through to the 1620s. And we get Johnson's very famous elegy where he calls Shakespeare the sweet swan of Avon and says that he will be not for an age but for all time. Johnson's absolutely right, but Johnson would probably be the first to acknowledge rather ruefully that he is a bit of a renter quote at this point. He says something very similar about the Jacobean traveller and wit Thomas Coriat, that we will be reading him as long as the world still turns on its axis. And you think, not quite. And there is a poem by Johnson, which is a sort of praising poem of this kind, where he says, some people will say, I praise too many people, but this time I really mean it. He knows that he's doing that. So there's something quite odd about the whole thing. And I guess the most lasting of those preliminary materials has been the engraving by Martin Druchot, that picture. If people listening feel they know nothing about this book, actually, the front page will be completely familiar to you. It's that bald, domed head of Shakespeare, a sort of unconvincing neck and dark doublet body and a big white square plate kind of rough. And as much as we say, if we didn't have this book, we wouldn't have these plays 
that therefore not have been published. I think almost as important is we wouldn't have this image of the author. It's hard to think of an author, a celebrity author or an author with a kind of ongoing reputation for whom there is not some visual portrait. If you think about the arguments about the portraits of Jane Austen, for instance, that we sometimes flare up, you can see there's quite a lot going on when we want to have a an author, we want to know what they look like, we want to be able to focus our attention on an individual person. Can we talk a bit about the importance of the folio, given that perhaps something like two-thirds of all the plays that are performed in this early modern period don't survive? And although we've talked about the downsides of codifying these texts in motion, as you called them, how much do you think Shakespeare's reputation relies on this publication of a nearly complete set of his plays so soon after his death? It completely relies on that. The first thing is we wouldn't have these plays. I think it's pretty clear they would have been lost. And the reason those plays from the period have not survived is I think they've done their job. They were conceived of as performances, not as books. But without being books, they've not survived. So putting these plays into a book clearly makes them survive. And Shakespeare's canon looks very different without them. So if we look at the plays that were printed before the folio, they really focus on Shakespeare as a historical dramatist, which I think is quite interesting. We would probably think of Shakespeare perhaps as an English dramatist, but not so much as a global one or a transferable one. There are fewer tragedies in the unfolio Shakespeare. So just a different configuration. And even those plays that we would still have, we would have Hamlet, as you said, we would have Romeo and Juliet. I don't think they would stand out. They would have become so iconic as they have. And that's because actually, back to your very first question about what this book is, and it's back to size. This is a book that it's really quite hard to lose where it is As we've said, it's not portable, it's not going anywhere. You can reach for it. And there are some literal moments in history where people do reach for it. When Thomas and Charles Killigrew are given the commission to get the theatre back up and running on the accession of Charles II, and they think, how are we going to do that? Nobody's put on a public play for 18 years, nobody's written a play, what are we going to do? We know they have a copy of the first folio. We know actually one of them has drawn rather a lovely lurcher or a dog like that in the front of it. And I think they pull that off the shelf and think, yeah, here's a start. This is what we're going to go for. They find Twelfth Night. They realise that Viola, dressed as a man, will be showing a lot of ankle. It's a good way to use the new phenomenon of actresses. And they're away. They've adapted Shakespeare for a new theatrical context. But it's the existence of the first folio that makes that possible. And I think that's a sort of microcosm of what we've been doing ever since. The fact that this book is something we can reach for, literally or metaphorically, has enabled not necessarily the preservation of the plays or the reproduction of the plays in exactly that form, but new contexts and new moments to work with it. So I think Shakespeare would just not be Shakespeare without this folio. He would be one of a number of writers. I don't think he would be the great global writer. I don't think he would have been translated first into German and French and then from then into pretty much every other language. I don't think that would have happened in anything like the same way. So it's a really interesting counterfactual. I'm also trying to push the idea that maybe Abraham Lincoln would not have been assassinated if Booth had not been so steeped in playing Brutus in Julius Caesar. Obviously a hitman who kills the ruler. 
So it's a really great kind of counterfactual. And it's a great counterfactual to think who would have occupied this space in our cultural life. What would a kind of literary culture organised around, I don't know, the Brontes or I don't know, who would it be? Dickens, I don't know what we would have put in its place. Now, I've got a copy of your book, Shakespeare's First Folio, one of your books here, and I haven't drawn a lurcher in the front, but I have kind of, you know, marked up some pages. There's a bit of pencil work in here. If we looked at copies of the first folio, apart from those editions added by readers, were they otherwise identical or did printing vary between copies? So printing varies between copies in that in the print shop there is intermittently, not absolutely consistently, but there is a stage of correction where a printed sheet comes off the press and it is being effectively proofread while other sheets are being printed. And once the proof has been done, corrections are made and then the rest of the run is done on the corrected sheet. So every copy of the first folio is a sort of mixture of corrected and uncorrected sheets. They're all also bound differently. They always have been bound differently. You probably always bought this book as a collection of folded paper rather than as a book with a cover and you got that done at a binder's. So from the beginning, they have variety and they have an element of bespokeness. And that has, in almost all copies, continued as the books show marks, yeah, like your book, of people reading, sometimes reading in quite a organised or utilitarian or focused way, and some doodling or spilling wine or something on it. There's a lovely copy I'm very fond of where a little girl called Elizabeth Oakle in 1712 has drawn a lovely sort of Queen Anne house with windows and a chimney, and she's just gone for it. And it just suggests a moment when this is a book in the household, not shut away, not even particularly in a masculine sphere of the library, but available in ways which, since the end of the 18th century, its increasing price has made less and less possible. Do you think that this highlights something, which is that now these first folios are carefully displayed in museums and libraries, they're somehow frozen in time. Do you think it's almost dangerous to fetishise the first folio as an object in this way? I do. And I think that there's an irony in the fact that we are so interested in the marks of use from the past and so terrified to make any marks of our own use on these copies. There's something about that makes the past legitimate and that anything we do is just spoiling it rather than adding to its life. There's a really interesting case happening at the University of Durham. They have a first folio that had been stolen and then came back after a period away and its binding has been very badly damaged. And they are wondering what to do. And there is a real suggestion and lots of people are encouraging them to preserve it as it is, so not to intervene in it. And the consequence of that is this is a book that cannot be opened. You think that's such a sort of perfect, maybe the perfect historically sensitive response, but it is completely anti-book in a way. And I was trying to say, maybe we could have a competition and have a 21st century binding. Wouldn't that be fantastic? We say this is a relevant book. We say Shakespeare is relevant. Why don't we do a really modern thing, which is exactly what people would have done in 1923 or 1823, they would have done something modern. But it's interesting how unconfident we are 
about the validity of our own activity in relation to this book and perhaps in relation to other sort of ideas about conservation of all kinds of objects has gone very non-interventionist, hasn't it? And of course we can understand that. But one of the consequences is to suggest that our ownership, our use of these objects or these books is somehow not legitimate. And it's interesting with the folio, especially because it's not particularly rare. There are something like 235 copies that survive. So, you know, why is there such reverence surrounding it? Yes, I worked out one time there are probably more folios than there are pandas, I think, in the wild. This is not a rare book. Again, as we keep coming back to, the form is really important in that. It's a book that's not going to fall apart through using it. It's not going to get lost or forgotten about or easily destroyed. And that's resulted in a very high survival rate, particularly when we compare that with quarto, single play editions of Shakespeare, that first edition of Hamlet from 1603, for example. We've got two incomplete versions. That's it. That's the only copies that have survived. So there is a disparity between the reverence, the price, the sense of pricelessness that attaches to this book and its relative commonness in libraries around the world. Anybody who wants to look at one in the UK or in most parts of the US will have a chance to do that at some point this year. You're within striking distance of a first folio, wherever you are. So these are books which are around, but they're super charismatic. There is something very special about seeing them I was at an event at an institution which owns quite a scruffy, bashed-up copy. And perhaps because of that, they just had it out on a stand. And it was incredibly exciting. And we all thronged round and looked at it. And it had some of the magic that's a bit more difficult sometimes to see. And it's more like a relic. Finally, then, you've already alluded a little bit to this. But just to give one last opportunity. You mentioned Ben Jonson's line about Shakespeare not being of an age but for all time, this rent quote. What do you think the lasting legacy of the first folio has been? I think the lasting legacy is this extraordinary collection of generative texts. So for me, it's not the end of something, and I don't think of it as looking backwards to its connection to Shakespeare. I think of it as the moment in the cultural relay race when the baton of these texts gets passed on to new runners. And we are the new runners, full of energy and enthusiasm and creativity. And it's the moment for me then when the plays leave their original circumstances, they leave their author behind and they come into this form which can travel through time and across the world, and be reinvented by those places and times. So for me, the lasting legacy is this extraordinary kind of creative permissiveness. Well, thank you so much for talking us through the first folio, which people are going to be hearing a lot about this year. And now they can understand because you've given such a clear guide to its creation. And if people want to know more, there's a beautiful 400th anniversary edition of Emma's book, Shakespeare's First Folio, Four Centuries of an Iconic Book, that is now on sale from Oxford University Press. Professor Smith, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. 
Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.